So Revelation 1, 1 to 8. The revelation from Jesus Christ, whom God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. And so shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So well, Jess. Uh, It's great to be here. Great to be preaching Revelation. I think it's 12 years since we last preached Revelation. It's a great book. Um, One of my favourite hymns. Starts with these lines, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in light of his glory and his grace. Turn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, fix your eyes upon Jesus, be fixated on Jesus. Do, do you know, church, uh, here in Kimberley, what, what are we? I don't know, 90 to 100 people tonight? Praise God for that. But as we sit here, there are 2.38 billion people around the world worshipping Jesus. Doesn't that blow your mind? 2.38 billion people who have turned their eyes upon Jesus. Doesn't that blow your mind? And you're supposed to think, how did that happen? Do you ever think about how that happened? I mean, the early church, the first church was what? A bunch of men and women in a locked room, living in fear, worshipping a dead leader. And that has grown over the centuries to billions of people worshipping Jesus. How did that happen? How did the church survive? How did the church thrive? In, in the early church, when there was persecution and martyrdom and people like Emperor Nero trying to destroy the church, how on earth did the church survive? In the Middle Ages, with the, the Crusades, how did the church survive then? Or, or last century, the church in China, when they tried to kick out all those missionaries and yet the church thrived, how did that happen? Or in Cambodia, with the killing field of Cambodia, where literally millions of Christians were persecuted for their faith, and yet the church is thriving. How on earth did that happen? I hope you realise how safe we have it here in Kiribati. As we sit here, around 600 million Christians who have fixed their eyes upon Jesus are being persecuted for their faith. 600 million One in 12 believers wake up every morning in fear for their life because they're believers. We have it so easy, don't we? So how does God's church survive? That's our question tonight. 
Let me ask a slightly different question. Why are you here tonight? Why are you here at 7 p.m. on a Sunday night? Why aren't you sitting in front of Netflix or Binge or whatever your streaming platform is? Why are you here? I hope it's not just because you like the people here or it's a nice social club. I hope you are here because you'll be part of that 2.38 billion people who have fixed their eyes upon Jesus. See, the church survives, the church thrives, not because of strategic planning or clever preaching or amazing music. The church only survives because the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of his church. Jesus Christ established his church. Jesus Christ created his church. Jesus Christ holds on to his church. Jesus Christ grows his church and maintains his church. It's Jesus Christ who causes us to grow. We are here tonight to worship Jesus, yes? And if you're here tonight for any other reasons, you're missing the point. And if you go to a church where it's not all about Jesus Christ, dare I say it's not a true church. Because church is about Jesus. All about Jesus. And that's why we're looking at Revelation, this term, because Revelation is all about Jesus Christ. It's actually a really simple book. Please don't get fixated on dragons and beasts and lampstands and bowls. It's all about Jesus Christ. And I believe that if you allow your mind to be enlarged and your vision to be enlarged and you get to see Jesus in all his power and all his glory, then this church will thrive and you will thrive. I love the, the story of the, the businessman who came home from work one night and he's utterly exhausted. And so he comes in and he kicks off his shoes and he puts his feet up and all he wants to do is just sit there with, with a beer and to read the newspaper. And in walks his son and says, Dad, Dad, will you play with me? You think, oh, I don't want to play with you, son. And here's his idea, because he's reading the newspaper. In the newspaper, there's a, there's a picture of a, of, a, of a map of the world. And so he gets this pair of scissors, he chops up the map of the world and hands his son all these pieces of paper and this sticky tape and says, go away and stick the world back together. And when you've done that, I'll play with you. And he's thinking, I've got about an hour just to relax. Five minutes later, his son comes back and says, I've finished it. He's got the perfect world. He says, how did you do that so quickly? He said, oh, it's really simple. On the back of the map of the world, there was a picture of a man. And so I turned it over and I put the man back together and then turned the paper over and the world was back together. And I love that story because actually when you put the man Jesus Christ back together, it puts our world back together. And when you put the man Jesus Christ back together in your life and understand who he is, it will put your life back together. That's what we're going to do in Revelation. We're going to put Jesus Christ back together. This book is an incredible book. I want to begin with um, the first R tonight, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 verse 1. The revelation, our, our version says from Jesus Christ. It's the same word of both are true. It is from Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 1, there's no S there. It's not revelations. It's revelation. It's a singular revelation about Jesus. The word revelation, the word is actually apocalypse. I don't think death and destruction. The word apocalypse or revelation, it just means an unveiling, an uncovering, making something clear. And isn't that ironic? 
The book of Revelation that we think is the most confusing book of the Bible is actually supposed to make things clear. Especially an unveiling of Jesus. Just so you understand that word. Today is not just our 17th birthday. Today is 70 years, 70 years since Her Majesty the Queen became Queen. Praise God for that. 70 years. Over the years, she's had hundreds of statues made of her. If you've ever been to an unveiling of a statue, it is incredibly dull. But it goes like this. There's, a, there's this sheet. There's this big uh, blanket over this statue. And, and then the, the sculptor comes and talks about this amazing sculpture. And you're thinking, I, I don't get it. And there's this moment of revelation. They go, Whew! and you see the statue and you go, oh, I get that now. That is, that is an unveiling. That is revelation. It's a bit like the new iPhones. Every single year, a new iPhone comes out. There's rumors for months beforehand. What are the new features? And then on the day, it's unveiled. It's revealed. That's what the word means. It's the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. As you read this book, you're supposed to see Jesus with greater clarity. He'll reveal more and more of himself. Let's keep reading. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus to show his servants, that's you and I and all believers, what must soon take place. He, God, made it known, or the word therefore made it known is signified or symbolized. That's going to be important. It's a symbolic book. He symbolized it by sending his angel to his servant, John. So you see the the transition? God gave it to Jesus, who revealed it to an angel, who revealed it to John, and wrote it down for us. Verse 2, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So this is an easy book if you fix your eyes upon Jesus. Uh, It's a letter. I hope you know that the revelation is just a letter, like 1, 2 Corinthians, like Ephesians, like Philippians. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. So so John, verse 4, is the author. This is John the Apostle, John the son of Zebedee, John the brother of James, John the one of the inner three, the one that Jesus loved. Where is he writing from? Verse 9, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos. So Patmos is this beautiful Greek island. It's about 35 kilometers off the coast of Greece. I went there about 30 years ago. I, I, I could bore you with some photos from a holiday. We've got no projector. What a shame that is. Here's an interesting fact about Patmos. Patmos is the only Greek island today that still has no running water. They ship all their water in still. It's beautiful. There is little cafes and restaurants and there's little churches and little houses. It's stunningly beautiful today. But it wasn't beautiful then, because Patmos was a penal colony. Patmos was a prison then. You were sent to Patmos, you were exiled to Patmos. So John is writing from prison in about AD 96. He's he's about 90 years old. He's an old man who has lived decades and decades of persecution. They even tried to boil him to death in oil. He's not sunny on holidays in Patmos, he's in prison. And yet he has this vision of Jesus. He delights in Jesus. 
And I, and I do think, friends, that you, you see more and more of Jesus in the most difficult trials of life. I'll flip that around. The, the Christians who have suffered most but have fixed their eyes on Jesus are often the most joyful Christians. So he's writing John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And when you read Asia in the Bible, don't think China or Japan. Uh, this is Asia Minor. Think modern-day Turkey. So he's writing to these seven churches in modern-day Turkey, and that number seven is important because the number seven in Revelation is a number of completion or perfection. And so they are seven real churches, real people, real places, but it's more than that. These are the letters to the global church. This is God's letter to his church of all ages. And that's why we're studying it for the year of loving the nations to see what God thinks about his global church. And I'm so excited about this book because I think we're going to discover great truths about how glorious Jesus is and what it, like, what it means to be his people. So the suffering John is writing to suffering Christians, the global church, and he says, grace and peace to you from the Trinitarian God, verse, verse 4, from the Father who is, who was, and is to come, the eternal one, from the seven spirits, verse 4, that's a way of saying the Holy Spirit, the, the perfect, complete Spirit of God, and from Jesus Christ. So a letter from God to his church, but it's also a prophecy. See that word in verse 3? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. At church, please don't be scared by prophecy. A quarter of your Bible is prophecy. A prophecy is just a word from God that is true today and will, and will give you confidence for the future. A word from God that's true today that will explain your life today but will also give you confidence for the future. So I reckon we're scared by this book or confused by this book because of the, the genre. Because most of us here in Sydney are what I call fact learners. We like facts. Just give us the facts. This is not a book about facts. This is a, a, a letter which is written with his symbolism, with his visual aids, his picture language. Uh, so John writes with these, these amazing pictures of, of beasts and dragons and bowls and lampstands and numbers like seven for completion and six for imperfection. So why the heck does John write with symbolism? A few reasons. You've got to remember when John wrote this letter, Everybody was reading, including the Roman authorities who would persecute him. So he wrote in symbolic language so the unbelievers would not understand it. But he expected the believers to understand it because his symbolic language is exactly the same as in Ezekiel and Daniel. You're supposed to get it. The other thing about symbolism, it is timeless. It transcends culture and languages. But the most important thing about symbolism or code is that it's supposed to evoke some emotion in you. Now, facts don't cause an emotional response, but pictures do. And so John could have written, a dictator is coming. You go, oh, interesting. But when he says, this beast is going to come out of this raging sea, you go, oh, whoa. And he could have written, beware of religion. You go, oh, yeah, yeah, nice fact. But he doesn't write that. He says, Babylon, the, the mother of whores, is here. And you're supposed to go, whoa, that is, that is evocative. And so please read Revelation expecting yourself to be moved emotionally. 
And please read this book expecting to be blessed. That's the promise of verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it. And blessed are those who take it to heart. Now, I, I can control the first two there. Blessed are those who read it. We're going to read it every week. Blessed are those who hear it. Hopefully you will hear the word of God spread every week. But only you are responsible for that third blessing of taking to heart. So my challenge, church, is as you hear this read and explain, will you obey? Will you turn your eyes upon Jesus? That's the overview. Three quick R's. What does Jesus reveal about himself? The first one, he reveals that he's the ruler. Jesus is the ruler. He's the, the reigning king on his throne that Jesus never, ever, 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 ever leaves his throne every moment of every day, of every year, of the entire history of this world, the Lord Jesus Christ has been on his throne. I have to remind you that 2022 is another election year. Don't groan. It's the same every time, isn't it? Different players, different policies, different promises. End of the day, you've got these people who make all these big, bold promises, and regardless of, of what party you vote for, none of them actually deliver on what they say, do they? But Jesus comes and he says, trust me, vote for me, and you will have a really blessed life because I am a true, reliable ruler. I love verse 5. He says, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. That word faithful, it means truthful. Jesus is saying there, he's not a liar. He always tells the truth. He never compromises the truth. There's no spin. There's no backflips. Your King Jesus on his throne is utterly, utterly, utterly trustworthy. What he says will happen will happen. Now, now to me, that is such an important truth about my Saviour. Because I grew up as a child in a house of liars. My entire childhood, what I lived with is this web of lies that was being spun, and we were just told to tell white lies all over the place. And I never knew what I couldn't tell, couldn't, couldn't tell other people. And it's utterly exhausting, you know? It's exhausting because you never really know whether someone's telling the truth. And when I met Jesus 32 years ago, I was like, well, here's a man who I can take at his word. What he says will happen will happen. He's faithful. He's a witness. The word there for witness in verse 5 is the word martyr. So he's a man who is trustworthy and he died for the truth. That's got to be encouraging for Christians around the world today who are dying for the truth. So, the, so our King Jesus, the ruling Jesus, he is faithful and he is the firstborn. See that verse, verse 5, the firstborn from the dead. That's a, a picture of his power. He's not saying he's the first one ever to be raised. That means there's Lazarus, there's Jairus' daughter, there was the widow's son. But he is the first one who's conquered death. He's the first one who's died never to die again, raised never to die again. He has the power to defeat death. So you've got a, a faithful king, a faithful ruler, a powerful ruler. And in verse 5, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. There is no king, no queen, no politician, no president, no prime minister that he is not ruling over. He is sovereign. He is supreme. He's the king of kings, lord of lords. I find that so comforting that in this world with corrupt leaders and corrupt kings and queens and prime ministers who never keep their word, that's no reflection on any political party. But I've got a king in heaven, my ruler, the Lord Jesus, 
who's in total control. And that means, friends, that if, he, if he's ruling this world, let's bring it home, he's ruling your life, isn't he? If he's on his throne of this world, he must be king of your life. He has the right to tell you how to live. He has the right to tell you what to do and what not to do. So I guess that's a challenge. Would you let him be ruler of your life? That's the first revelation. He is the ruler. Secondly, he's the redeemer. He's the redeemer. He has the right to rule you because he redeemed you. Verse 5. To him who loves us. Let's just stop there. To him who loves us. Don't skip over that, please. Let's ponder that. To him, to Jesus, who loves you. Put your name in there. To him who loved Paul. To him who loved Ali and David. To him who loved Lizzie and Nick. To him who loved Mark. To him who loved Rachel. To him who loved Carrie. To him who loved Catherine. To him who loves you. He loves you. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that your Lord Jesus Christ, that the ruling king, he loves you with this lavish, sacrificial, undeserved love? I really, really wish we really believed this. You may may feel unloved, but there's somebody in this world who loves you and he's the best person to love you. His name is Jesus. The same John who wrote this wrote these words, this is love, not that we love God, but God loved us. Not that we love God, but God loved us and sent his sons as a sacrifice for our sins. So if you ever question God's love for you or Jesus' love for you, just, just, just turn your eyes to the hillside, to the, the old wooden cross. That's how much he loved you. And as you read those words, to him who loves us, please remember where John is writing from. He's not writing from paradise. He's writing from prison, from Patmos. So life's not plain sailing for John. But Jesus never stopped loving him. John knew that the love of Jesus was not dependent on his circumstances. And I say that because I keep meeting Christians who think that God has stopped loving them because of their circumstances. Your circumstances might be terrible and difficult. It does not mean that Jesus doesn't love you. Please never doubt the love of Jesus for you. But this was a purposeful love. Why did he love you? How did he love you? Keep reading. To him who loves us and has freed us, liberated us, whether he has redeemed us from our sins by his blood. That's how he loved you. He loved you enough to set you free, to redeem you from your sins. But please notice the order there. He doesn't say... Jesus freed us from our sins and he washed us and once he'd done all that and cleaned us up, then he loved us. It starts with love, doesn't it? He says he loved you when you were a messy, murky, filthy sinner and he still loved you and then he redeemed you. He set you free, he says, from your sins by his blood. That's the most extraordinary truth. Do you realise if you've been a believer 3,000 years ago, You'd have come to church with a goat or a bull or a lamb or something. And you'd bring a sacrifice each week and you'd hand over your animal to a priest and the priest would transfer your sins onto onto the the, the shoulders of this animal and then they'd get a a big filthy knife and, and slit the throat and blood would come spurting out. 
And you'd be covered in blood and the priest would be covered in blood because blood in the scriptures is a picture that a life has been shed on the behalf of somebody else. And an animal will be sacrificed on your behalf and you'd leave church thinking, oh, I have been cleansed, but next week I have to come back and bring another animal. And then Jesus steps into the world and, and John says, look, the lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb, the one who's been slain for the sins of the world. And Jesus walked to that cross and shed his blood. Blood poured down his face as they put the crown of thorns on him and blood was pierced out of his side and his hands. Blood was shed from the Lord Jesus Christ once and for all so that you and I can be liberated, redeemed, set free from our sins. And I hope you've grasped that. By his blood, you've been set free from the penalty of your sin. Your debts have been paid once and for all, fully forgiven at the cross of Christ. You've been set free from the penalty of your sin. You've been set free from the power of your sin. Now, sin has no power over you. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You're free. You've got the Holy Spirit in you to equip you to say no to sin. The penalty has been paid. The power has been dealt with. And sadly, the presence of sin is still there until the day that you meet Jesus face to face. That's the glorious truth that you've been redeemed. You're loved. You're redeemed. Uh, There's a purpose in this, verse 6. He has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. That's what it means to be a child of God. You're part of a kingdom. You're a prince. You're a princess. You you belong to the king. And you're called a priest. Ed and I are not the only priests in in his building tonight. We're all priests if we believe in Jesus Christ. To be a priest doesn't mean you wear one of those stupid collars and you sprinkle water around and you, you take confessions. That is, that is man-made religion. To be a priest means that you have access into the throne room of heaven. There are no barriers. There's nothing stopping you entering the presence of God and experience his, his glory and his power. To be a priest means that you can come into the throne room of heaven. And to be a priest means you can intercede on behalf of other people. You have the privilege of praying for everybody here tonight in the throne room of heaven. Now, do you understand who Jesus is? He, he has loved you. He has redeemed you. He has made you a prince and a princess and a priest to serve him. That's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's ruling, he's redeeming, and then lastly, he's returning. He is returning. This is the, the big issue of this book. This is, this is where history is heading. Something big is about to happen in our world and in your life, and it's called the return of Jesus Christ. And whenever something big happens, especially if it's dangerous, you want to be warned about that, don't you? Now, back in World War II, if a bomb's about to be dropped, an air raid siren would sound, which is a warning, warning, get into the air raid shelter, protect yourself, because a bomb's about to drop. How loving is that to do an air raid warning? Back in January, we were on holidays down the south coast, and the boys were heading to the beach, and suddenly there was a tsunami warning. And that tsunami warning is saying, don't go in the water today, it could be dangerous. That's a loving warning, isn't it? Well, this warning we're about to get is not about a tsunami or a bombing. The next big thing that's going to happen that we need to be warned about is called the return of Christ. 
verse 7. He says, look, the word there is behold, watch, be attentive, be expectant, look. He is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming back again with the clouds, it says. That's a Daniel 7 reference. The clouds there in verse 7, it could be literal clouds. Do you remember how in Acts chapter 1, when Jesus was ascended, he ascended in the clouds and he said, I'm going to come back the same way. It could be that. I think it's figurative. I think it's descriptive because clouds in the scripture always describe what? God's glory, the Shekinah glory, the, the cloud over the tabernacle. And they describe God's people in the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews chapter 12. And I think what John is saying is, look, when Jesus returns, he's going to come with glory and with power and with the people of God. It's going to be magnificent. And every eye will see him, unlike his first coming when he came in obscurity and only a few saw him, when he comes again, every eye will see him. Every human being who's ever existed will see him. Here's the scary bit. Verse 7, even those who pierced him, even those who crucified him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. He's saying there that on that last day, every eye will see him, every knee will bow to him, every tongue confess he is Lord, even those who spent their entire life on this earth rejecting Jesus, mocking Jesus, scorning Christianity, on that last day they'll go, oh, how stupid I have been. So if he's coming back, here's a question for you. Are you ready for his return? Are you ready for him to return? Do do you live your life saying, look, he's coming, he's coming. History's heading somewhere. Do you wake up and say, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Here's a confession. I, I pray that most days these days. Come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. Are you ready? To be honest, that's an easy question for me to answer. Yes. Yeah, I'm ready. I long for that day. But here's a more difficult question for me. Do I really believe that all peoples on earth will mourn because of him? Do I really believe that every eye will see him? The answer is yes. And that breaks my heart. And it breaks my heart because I've got some deeply, deeply loved family and friends who are still mocking Jesus and rejecting Jesus. On, on Tuesday night this week, we're doing a course called Christianity Explored. It's a wonderful course where you can meet Jesus. You can invite friends to meet Jesus. It's a course written by a friend of mine called Rico Tice. He works for All Souls Langham Place. And I've shared this story before because it is a powerful story. About 20 years ago, Rico was running that course at All Souls Langham Place. And he invited a good friend from school days to do the course with him. He'd known his friend for 20 years. 20 years they'd been friends. Uh, On week three of the course, Rico and his friend went out for a beer one night. And his friend said to him, Rico... I can't believe you call yourself my friend. He said, look, I'm really sorry. Tonight was a hard night. We talked about heaven. We talked about hell. And we talked about the exclusivity of Christ. I'm really sorry. And the friend turned to Rico and said these, these memorable words. He said, no, no, no. I wasn't upset by the idea of heaven and hell. What upset me the most is that you've called yourself my friend for 20 years. And you've never told me this before. You've never told me this, and yet you called yourself my friend. And when I ever hear that story, I think, yeah, that's true for me. 
people in my life right now and, and friends of old who, they've been friends for years and I haven't had the courage to tell them about how glorious the Lord Jesus Christ is. I want to encourage you to be bold this week. Invite a friend on Tuesday night. It's not hard. They can just say no. But if we really believe he's coming again and every eye's going to see him, we, we want everyone that we know and love to be there for all eternity, don't we? That, that's the revelation. He is ruling. He's king of your life. He's redeeming. He loves you and has freed you from your sins. And he is returning. So verse 6, to him be glory and to him be the power forever and ever. Amen.